And welcome to Muslim Money. I'm your host, Imran. And in this podcast series, we're going to be talking about everything and anything related to Muslims and money. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing some of the themes and ideas that came about during my research and in my book. So I've got a book that's published by Routledge called A Comparative Study of Islamic Finance in Australia and the UK. So definitely check that out. In this episode, we're going to go back to basics a little bit and we're going to be talking about one of the main prohibitions and that is the riba. There's a lot of discussion and research around Muslims living as minorities in the West and also a lot of the f- challenges that many Muslim communities face and particularly for, for people who are trying to practice their faith. This book focuses on one particular aspect of this kind of interaction and it explores the intersection of religion with the secular economic sphere in order to understand the diverse uh, kind of experiences within Muslim economic negotiation in Australia and the UK. In this episode, we're going to go back to basics and we're going to be discussing one of the main prohibitions um, in Islamic finance, and that is the prohibition of riba. Now, there is little debate in the Islamic tradition on the prohibition of riba. The differences, however, lie in the interpretation of riba and the question of how to live in a society that is heavily reliant on interest and conventional banking and finance, yet at the same time remain observant to the prohibition. Now, this is particularly relevant for Muslims living in um, Western countries, in, in, in Europe, Australia, America, etc. But it's also very relevant in the Muslim world where, you know, conventional banking and finance is prevalent. And, you know, people who are trying to practice their, their, their faith are often conflicted or they at the very least, have to face a decision as to whether they go with conventional financing or Islamic financing. And a lot of it centers around this kind of um, prohibition of of riba. A lot of my research in this area actually stems from my own kind of personal journey, you know, being Muslim, uh, born and raised in Australia, and, and just trying to navigate this kind of economic sphere and understand the parameters of the faith. On the one hand, you might have a lot of Muslims who are maybe second or third generation uh, Muslims that are trying to kind of balance the requirements of the faith, yet at the same time live within the realities of you know Western culture and environments, and it's one of constant negotiation. And what's interesting is that the economic sphere is a is traditionally a very secular space. So how Muslims interact with this space has always been something of interest to me. Not obviously on a, on a personal level, but also how a community kind of deals with this um, kind of dynamic. Now to discuss the riba, it's very difficult to discuss riba without digressing a little bit and first discussing what Islamic law is and what is sharia. When I talk to a lot of non-Muslims about Islamic law and how Islamic finance works, often another religious tradition is often framed within their own understanding and experiences with religion. And I think this is wrong. I think this is it's, it's important to recognize that and it's important to... Um, understand another religious tradition according to how they understand it. So, for example, if I'm talking to a, a, a Catholic person, for example, there's a tendency to frame their kind of understanding of how religion works, say, for example, you know, in a very organized, structured way. You know, you have the clergy, you have the Pope, and, and, and everything kind of is very highly institutionalized and structured. Whereas the Islamic tradition really doesn't work like that. We don't have a clergy. We have learned scholars. We have fuqaha. We have jurists. And we have schools of of law, but we don't have a clergy as such, or a type of clergy, at least within the Sunni tradition. So it's important to kind of delink understanding, particularly if you're non-Muslim here listening, delink your understanding of how religion works when you look at another religion like Islam. 
So it's really difficult to discuss riba without first discussing what Islamic law is or sharia. So any type of Islamic finance activity is activity that is consistent with Islamic law or sharia. Now the term sharia comes from the Arabic root shara'a, which kind of denotes a path. And in some in Lisan al-Arab and a few other uh, commentaries, they talk about this path leading to water. So you can imagine this kind of concept, you're in desert Arabia, really thirsty, and you have this kind of path leading to what is a good is a, is a good path. So literally kind of a path leading to the source, in a sense. So it's often described as a way, a path, um, you know, a divinely mandated path, the straight path, but it's generally understood to be Islamic law. The primary sources of Islamic law is one, the Quran, which Muslims believe to be the word of God as revealed to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And there is complete unanimity among all all the schools of, of uh, juristic thought in the Sunni world, the Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali, Zahiri, and the other schools, Zaidi, Ibadi, Ja'fari, etc., that the Qur'an is among the primary sources of Islamic law. The secondary source of Islamic law is the Sunnah. And this often refers to you know the Prophet's actions, his sayings, when he's silent or implied approval for the actions and sayings of others. And there's complete, again, unanimity among scholars and schools of juristic thought in the acceptance and authority of hadith that are what's called mutawatir or, or multiple-chained hadith. And they differ, however, on the authority of single-chained hadith, or some say one to three, or ahad hadith. And without going into too much detail, there's a whole science of how scholars and the muhaddithun would classify hadith according to authentic and, and not so authentic hadith. So juristic scholars would kind of use the Qur'an, verses of the Qur'an, use authenticated hadith from the Prophet, and try to extrapolate what they understand from it to uh, derive rulings. So fiqh is a kind of a detailed technical discussion seeking to understand and implement the sharia. And this is essentially a product of human reasoning or ijtihad. And this area covers a wide range of aspects of Muslim life, including the economic and financial matters that are primarily derived from the proof and evidence found in the Quran and Sunnah, if that makes sense. So fiqh, from a kind of a linguistic perspective, connotes a kind of a deep insight and understanding that comes from being cognizant of the ultimate objectives. And it stems from the prophetic saying, مَنْ يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينَ Whoever God wants to bestow goodness, khayran, he gives them an understanding of the faith, of the religion. And because fiqh is based on human independent reasoning and, and human interpretation, it's a, a kind of a dynamic set of rules and principles and parameters that have evolved over approximately 1,400 years of philosophical and legal reasoning and discussion. So while some aspects of Islamic law are fixed, much of Islamic law is based on these scholarly interpretations. And in the Sunni tradition, there are four main schools of jurisprudence known as madhabs. There are varying levels of differences of opinion uh, between the schools and within different schools of thought. But all schools, however, derive their rulings from the two primary sources of Islamic law, which, as mentioned, are the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So how does all of this relate to the prohibition of riba? Um, if, you, if you think about it, the, the, the Qur'an was revealed in the 7th century Arabia. And it was a context that was you know, relatively familiar with trade and commercial activity. So a caravan trade would pass between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea, and it would often pass through Mecca, 
being the birthplace of Islam and Medina, the second holiest site in Islam. And in those days, there were, there were two seasonal caravans that would often pass during the summer and winter periods. And these were communal undertakings in which various tribes would take part. And although barter trading predominated, you know, Byzantine Persian coins also circulated um, through Makkah, creating a relative familiarity with transactions involving money. And the Quran and prophetic traditions permitted certain modes of trade, and it also prohibited others. And of all the Sharia injunctions associated with financial transactions, the most well-known prohibition relates to this concept, this prohibition of riba. Now, riba is categorically prohibited in the Sharia, regardless of the amount. Linguistically, the lexical meaning of riba connotes increase, uh, um, uh, increment, growth, and, and augmentation. And there are four sets of verses in the Quran that relate to riba, um, being in Surah Al-Rum, uh, verse 39, Surah An-Nisa, verse 161, Surah Al-Ali Imran, verse, um, I'm going in completely out of order, but Surah Al-Ali Imran, um, uh, ayat starting at 130, and Surah Al-Baqarah starting at uh, ayat 275. And three of these verses relates specifically to the prohibition of riba. So it's important to understand the context of riba during the time of the Prophet. It was this kind of, you know, compounding interest which made it incredibly oppressive. So and the Quran talks about that in Surah Al Ali Amran where Allah says, Ya Yuhaladina Amunu la takulu riba adaafan mudaafatan. So O you who believe, do not consume riba, doubling, multiplied and and, and doubling and redoubling. So constantly multiplying. At the same time, Quran differentiates between modes of trade, which were permitted, and modes and riba, which was, which was prohibited, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later on. In in terms of you know, people criticize Islamic finance today, but back in those days, they also criticized modes of trade. Um, in the Quran, in Surah Al-Baqarah, it says, "ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ قَالُوا إِنَّمَا الْبَيْعُ مِثْلُ الرِّبَا." That, you know, people would also say trade is just like interest or trade is just like riba. But in the Quran it says Allah has, God has permitted trade and has prohibited the riba. So the riba that was mentioned in the Quran in these verses is typically described by the early jurists or the fuqaha as the riba al-jahiliyyah or the riba that was around during the time of pre-Islam. And this form of riba involved an increase from the principle and a delay in the repayment. And some companions like Usama bin Zayd, Abdullah bin Mas'ud, Urwa ibn Zubair, Zayd ibn Arqam, would go so far to say as that this is the only prohibited form of riba. Ahmed ibn Hanbal commented that there is no dispute on this form of riba. There are also many hadith on the topic of riba, some more authentic than others. But the most prominent, I guess, uh, hadith in relation to riba that the scholars uh, utilize is what's called the six commodities hadith or al-asnaf as-sitta and it comes from a variety of transmissions and is related by Bukhari, Muslim, Ahmad, al-Nasai, uh, Abu Dawud and Ibn Majah which essentially reads al-dhahabi dhahabi wal-fidda bil-fidda wal-barru bil-barri wal-sha'iru bil-sha'iri wal-tamru bil-tamri wal-milhu bil-milhi mathalan bi-mathali sawa'un bi-sawa'in so essentially gold for gold, silver for silver, wheat for wheat, barley for barley, date for dates, and salt for salt, like for like, equal for equal, hand to hand. Uh, 
If the types of the exchange commodities are different, then sell them as you wish if they are on-the-spot transactions. So this hadith has, uh, there's varying narrations of this hadith um, and ver- varying versions of this hadith, but essentially it revolves around these six commodities. Another hadith, um, which is prominent, but also, um, and, and there are many others, um, is a hadith that's narrated uh, by Muslim on the authority of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. And Bilal radiallahu anh visited the, 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 the Prophet with some high-quality dates. And the Prophet inquired about their source. Bilal explained that he had traded two volumes of lower-quality dates for one volume of high-quality. The Prophet said, this is precisely the forbidden riba. Do not do this. Instead, sell the first types of dates and then use the proceeds to buy the other. These hadiths um, and others became the foundation of the doctrine of riba in Islamic law. While the prohibition of riba was clearly stated in the Quran and in the hadith, what constitutes riba became an issue of contention because there was no clear definition in the Quran or the Sunnah. And even the second caliph, the prominent Umar ibn al-Khattab, he would lament that the verses of riba were among the last to be revealed. And the Prophet died before he could explain what it actually constituted. So he would, his reporter would have said in a, in a narration by Ahmad ibn Majah and At-Tabari, the Quranic verse regarding riba was among the last part of the Quran to be revealed. And the Prophet died, وَقَبَضَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ And he, the Prophet died before he, وَلَمْ يُفَسِّرْهَا And before he could explain what this verse was about. So give up riba and anything that you doubt. We're going to stop there for today's session. Thank you very much for listening. In the next session, we're going to look at these primary sources of Islamic law, look at the verses of Riba in the Quran and in the Hadith, and we're going to talk about how the scholars would extrapolate the meaning of Riba from that. I hope you can join us, and we'll catch you next time.